Good morning. Well, it's nice to see all of you this morning. Uh, if you would, please join me in John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one to you. If you raise your hand high, we'll get one to you eventually. And uh, if you'd like to keep this, please feel free to do so. John chapter 6. Now, in a few moments, I'm about to read, uh, beginning at verse 35. But just by way of orientation, this is now our third week, our third time in John chapter 6, this famous passage in which Jesus utters the beloved words, I am the bread of life. However, this passage is also where we saw Jesus feed over 15,000 people, and then they followed him, and then they had an interaction, and then there's a long sermon, a long exchange that takes place between Jesus and the crowds. And what results at the end of chapter 6 is that nearly all of these 15,000 plus people abandon Jesus. So on the one hand, you have some of the most beloved words, I'm the bread of life. On the other hand, Jesus preaches things to these multitudes that repulse them. And they murmur, and they grumble, and they leave. Except for his, uh, the apostles, the twelve at the very end, when Peter confesses that, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, as we just sang. And so, without further ado, there's the context. Uh, let's look at verse 35. I'll read from 35 to 40, and then pray, and we'll go from there. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. Well, we'll stop there and let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we, we want to continually obey and believe what you say in verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. And we would have the hope of Jesus raising us on the last day. But there may be friends here this morning who don't believe that. There may be friends here this morning who are believers of you, but are full of doubt and full of discouragement and confusion. Lord, all of our hearts in all manner of places, but we ask that you, by your Spirit, would do all that is necessary this morning in your grace to draw us closer to Jesus and make us more like Jesus. And Jesus, we are about to hear hard words from you preached. And these, Lord, preached by you that led to the multitudes leaving you. And we have those words of you hanging over our heads. Do you too want to go? And I pray, Lord, that we all would finish our time in your word this morning saying, where else would we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, amen. When I was a fairly new believer, I think I had, I was in my early 20s, so I had been a believer less than five years, and I um, had a few side jobs that supported uh, my work volunteering as the youth and college pastor of the church I got saved at. One of the jobs I had was a machine shop and would run CNC machines and we made airplane yokes, steering wheels for airplanes. And one day, um, it, was, it was owned by a believer, and so there were believers who were employed there, and it was a really nice environment. And one particular day, we were working on the equipment, and that required me to be shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with uh, another guy, a peer of mine in his early 20s, and he was distraught. And the nice thing was we were able to talk about Jesus and fellowship with each other, but, but he was mulling over a theological question that he had of the Bible. And that's what led to him being distraught. And I hadn't really thought about it before, um, but his question was this. And I wonder how you would answer it this morning, and I wonder how Jesus will answer it this morning. The question he wrestled, wrestled over was this one. Are you the decisive factor in your salvation, or is God? Do you uh, bring things to the table to partner with God as a, as a together to save yourself and you contribute to that? Or do you bring nothing to the table and it's a work that's all of God? Uh, this was something that he was fretting over. This is something that I, too, spent a lot of time wrestling through. A lot of it given the environment I was saved in and the theology that was preached in the environment that I was saved in. Um, preach that I was decisive in my salvation, that I brought things to the table. And the question is, is that biblically true? And this is something that nearly, most likely, all Christians wrestle with at various times and seasons through their life and maybe believe that they're settled and maybe there's a doctrinal change or something along those lines like I have personally experienced. But this morning, John chapter 6, our aim is to retrace this long braided text that we've been in now for three weeks. And this time we're looking specifically at one of the strands of Jesus' words to the crowds. The crowds appear deaf to what Jesus says, but the disciples appear to receive what Jesus says. And the specific strand of Jesus' teaching woven throughout John 6 is the question of whether or not, or how rather, salvation works. Is it God who's primary or you? Now, the disciples believed Jesus. And the disciples believed Jesus, was it because they were more intelligent than the crowds? The, the disciples, did they have more information? Well, they did see Jesus walk on the water the previous morning um, or the previous evening. But did they have more teaching? Maybe a little bit. Did the apostles have a better disposition that predisposed them to following Jesus? Why, at the end of John 6, did the 12 remain 
including Judas, who would betray Jesus, whereas the 15,000 plus, nearly all of them, leave Jesus. The text this morning is going to answer the question, no to all those questions. No, the apostles are not more intelligent. No, they don't have more information to help them decide. No, they do not have a better disposition. Jesus will pull back this morning in John 6. He's pulling back the curtains of salvation to give us a behind-the-scenes look, a God's-eye view of why some people believe and some don't. I use behind-the-scenes There's a foreground and background, or you picture a stage. There's the stage of redemptive history where we live our lives, and then behind the scenes is the Lord working his work. Now, Scripture's clear. Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of the law. So in other words, God has not disclosed every detail of how his gospel plan works. And nor has God disclosed every detail of his infinite greatness and communicated every inexhaustible detail about himself to us, his finite creatures. Scripture is entirely comfortable letting tensions lay there because the secret things belong to the Lord. In other words... There are wonderful and marvelous things Scripture teaches about God, His gospel plan, that we will have a hard time fitting together. Well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why am I morally responsible? Or if, if I am the one who is decisive of my salvation, then can I lose my salvation and reject Jesus? And things along those lines. How do we fit together what's true? And arguably... Chief among the mysteries, as I said, that we all wrestle through is the topic of salvation. Namely, do you take credit for being a Christian and sitting here this morning, partial credit, some credit, most credit, I don't know, or do you take no credit for sitting here this morning and does God get all the credit? It's this topic that Jesus preaches Right, so we're not opening a systematic theology, we're opening up John 6. And in John 6, Jesus preaches, and what he says offends and drives the multitudes away, on the one hand, and on the other hand, causes his disciples and followers to savor the truth that he is the bread of life. Well, let's see this. Our outline this morning comes to us in three parts. Here it is, for taking notes, and I encourage you to do so. Number one, the Father gives us to the Son. And because it's a braided text, we're going to see three verses. We're going to look at verse 37, verse 44, and verse 65. The Father gives us to the Son. This is going to be the longest point of the message. Number two, shorter point, the Son protects and preserves all the Father gives him. And that's verse 37 and verse 39. And then we're going to close our time concluding um, three results. How does what Jesus teaches, what is it supposed to do in our lives? How do we respond to it? So we're going to see three results of what happens when you feast on the bread of life by faith. And we'll look at verse 57 for that. That's where we're going this morning. 
Look with me, please, at verse 37. Point number one, the Father gives us to the Son. Listen to these three verses Jesus preaches to the crowd. Verse 37, Jesus states, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44, Jesus continues, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 65, the crowds have left. Jesus is looking at the 12, and he says to them, This is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 37, notice what it says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What this means is that 100%, 100% of the people God the Father gives to God the Son will come to the Son. See the first word, all, in verse 37. Jesus says, all the Father gives me. Not some that the Father gives me, but all. And then notice it says, will come to me. He does not say, some that the Father gives to me might come to me. He says, all will come. 100% of the people God the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. This means then that when the Father is giving people to Jesus, people are not resisting the Father's work. God will give a people to his Son, and every person the Father wants to give, he will give to the Son. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Now look at verse 44. Jesus says this from the opposite vantage point, kind of from the negative. He says this, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so here we see the similar truth. 100% of people cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. When Jesus says no one, there is no gaps in that fence by which some can slip through independent of God. Jesus says no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So 100% of people cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And in case we missed it, Jesus repeats himself in verse 65 as he concludes this message looking at the 12 when he says to them, this is why I told you, right? The crowds are turning their backs. The text says that they're murmur murmuring and grumbling. So people are moving away from Jesus. The crowds are going down the hill away from him, 15,000 or so people. He turns to the 12 and he says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Now, John 6 and what Jesus is preaching here isn't an isolated text. You find truths like this all throughout the Bible. Uh, for example, we've already seen this in John chapter 1. If you turn to John 1 and look with me at verses 12 and 13, here's what John the Apostle 
says explaining about people coming to Christ. Verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. Now, on that verse alone, um, you could kind of go either direction. Maybe people do play a role in coming to Christ. Because it says they received him and they believed in him and then Jesus gave the rights and so it kind of looks like there's an order to it. But verse 13, look at verse 13. Why do they come to him? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here the apostle gives three negatives saying this is how people do not come to Jesus and there's only one way they do come to Jesus which he concludes by saying but of God, born of God. So a birth is needed in order to receive Jesus. Regeneration precedes faith. A birth needs to happen to receive Jesus. Verse 13 says who were born not of blood meaning a default ethnic ascent. Just because you were born as a, as a descendant of Abraham does not automatically mean that you were saved. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning in our Adam-like fallen state, we cannot come to God on our own. And it says, nor of the will of man, meaning there's no human desire to come to God or ability to be born again. That's why the text says who were born of God. So people are not born again as children of God into the kingdom of God because they willed and wanted it. People are born again, John chapter 3, because God willed and wanted it. Right? Remember John 3? No one can enter, let alone see the kingdom of heaven, unless he's born again. This similar truth is explicit in Romans 8, 7. Please join me over in Romans 8, 7. This is a text you need to lay your eyes on. In Romans 8, 7, the Apostle Paul is making a contrast between people who are believers, they're filled with God's Spirit, and people who are unbelievers don't have God's Spirit. And he refers to them as the flesh. In Romans 8, 7, here's the Apostle Paul describing me and you before Christ or outside of Christ. And he's explaining outside of Christ our relationship to God and God's word and ways. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He's not talking about a mindset, how we use it today, a mindset that has a good mindset or a bad mindset. He's talking about the nature of a human person. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Why? For it does not, note that, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Two things the apostle says that explains why outside of Christ we're hostile to God. One is a does not and one is a cannot. Does not is a matter of the will. It's what we do and don't do. Why does the mind set on the flesh, why is it hostile to God? Because it does not want to submit to God's law. And cannot, in Romans 8, 7, is a matter of ability. Meaning, 
you are unable to submit to God's law. So will not, it's unable and unwilling. So hypothetically, even if someone had to, the ability to come to Jesus on their own accord, Romans 8, 7 says, even if they had ability, they would never want to. 100% of the time, they do not submit to God's law. And the same truth is found in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Listen to this beautiful, rich text. Just two verses. It says of the Father, even as he, the Father, note the word, chose. The Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. And note this, in love he, the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Just so you know, I got saved in a tradition that had allergic reactions to the words choose and predestine. But I, I want to point out that this right here is a Bible and not a specific species of systematic theology. The words that I just read from Ephesians were from Ephesians. So choose God choosing people in Jesus, God predestining people in Jesus. No Bible-believing Christian can argue about those terms because they're in the Bible. We can maybe squabble over the meaning and application and how they work, and that does cause division in the body of Christ. We'll look at it in a few minutes. But for now, I want you to see that choose and predestined. So scripture uses a constellation of terms to describe what God does in saving people. So Ephesians told us that God chooses people. God predestines people. Did you know that another fairly common title of Christian? So if you're a Christian this morning, here is a fairly prominent title the New Testament uses of us. It's this, the elect. Did you know that? One of the most prominent titles is actually saints, holy ones. But another one is the elect. Now when the Bible, and you see it all throughout the New Testament letters, when the Bible says that we are the elect, this does not mean that God cast a vote for us and he's really hoping there's a good outcome. That's not what it means. It means that God selected and chose us. It's a synonym in that constellation of chose, predestined, elect. So for example, I'll just give you one verse. 2 Timothy 2.10. Beautiful passage. And I do think this ought to be a hallmark of all of our lives. The Apostle Paul is explaining his motivation for getting out of bed in the morning. And what he views as his purpose every single day. Therefore, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So this man, bitten by snakes, beaten with rods, whipped with whips, shipwrecked, 
maligned, slandered, imprisoned, all of those things, the apostle, with especially all of his suffering, viewed every single suffering moment of his life as enduring everything for the sake of the elect. And here he's referring to people who are not yet saved, but will be saved. And he endures everything knowing that the very people who are punching him in the face and breaking his teeth may very well be the people who turn to Jesus and get saved. Just as he did when he was killing Christians before Jesus saved him. So he lives his life for unbelievers who will become believers in addition for living, the church, living for the church. In all of this, this constellation of terms, choose and predestine, the elect, and all of those things, if I was to go to my office and get a book, a systematic theology, what this teaching falls under is called the doctrine of election. John chapter 6 is one of the most profound passages in the Bible that explains how salvation works, and it's called the doctrine of election. And what I want to point out to you, because I need to point this out to my 20-year-old self, is this is not Augustine making this up, and it's not John Calvin making it up. It's Jesus making it up. Maybe Jesus read Calvin's Institutes. I don't know. And as John 6 reveals with those all that the Father gives and no one can come, when we think back to the text at hand, John 6, it reveals that our election, because that's what Jesus is speaking of, is not conditioned on anything in us, nor is it resisted by us. Remember, all the Father gives will come. Or how about, when I say it's not conditioned, there's nothing in the text that's explaining that certain things need to happen for then the Father to be willing to give some people to Jesus. No, it's unconditional, is how we would say it. Only thing that we bring to the table in our salvation is this, sin and the need of salvation. And the need of a sin bearer who gladly goes to the cross for the joy set before him to take our sin, shame, and sorrow off ourselves and to give us peace with God so that God is no longer at war with us because sin is a declaration of war against God with eternal consequences. And so that's why Jesus in verse 63 of our text tells us this, the flesh is no help at all. There's nothing that we bring to the table. There's no condition. Verse 63, the flesh is no help at all. That means that our election by God is unconditional and it's irresistibly gracious. Irresistibly gracious. But how does this work? If you look back at our three verses, 37, 44, and 65, there's three key words. One word in each verse that Jesus uses to describe what's going on in this transaction or transfer, so to speak. What do I mean? Uh, verse 37, the Father gives to the Son. In verse 44, the Father draws people. And in verse 65, the Father grants. So gives, draws, and grants. Now, let me explain what we're about to do here. 
To be a faithful Bible reader and faithful Bible understander and faithful Bible applier means that we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And when we get to Bible words, words have meanings, and so we must read a word in context. But oftentimes, words are used multiple times in the Bible. And so what we want to do is we want to compare how a word is used here elsewhere to make sure we understand it properly. So, and you'll see why in a moment. So, for example, gives, in verse 37, the Father gives us to the Son. That's a straightforward term in the Greek. It simply means the Father possesses something, and he hands it over or gifts it to Jesus. The Father possesses people, and he gifts them to Jesus. He gives them to Jesus. That's a straightforward idea. But it's the next word, verse 44 and in verse 65, that can be confusing on the face of it. What do I mean? Well, in verse 44, it says the Father draws, right? No one can come to me unless. So there's a condition. No one can come to me unless, here's the condition, the Father who sent me draws him. But what picture does that put in your mind? Does that, sometimes you might hear preachers say the Father woos us, or he tries to entice us. Maybe he's trying to beckon us to come, come to him because that's a potentially possible way to understand the word. But how does the Bible use it? Um, there's a Greek word behind the English word, and there's three main ways that it's translated in other places of the Bible. And when we see that it's translated the same way in all the other places, then that helps us understand to interpret well. It's interpreted the same way in this place. What do I mean? John 21, 7. Same gospel, same author using the word, the apostle John. In John 21, 7, Jesus has risen from the grave for our justification. And the disciples, though, haven't seen him yet. They've gone fishing. They've caught nothing. Jesus is on the shore, and he tells them, yeah, uh, cast your net on the other side of the boat which is nonsense, but it's Jesus, so it makes perfect sense. And so what do they do? It says that they cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you know what happens. It becomes full of a multitude of fish, but the text says the disciples hauled the net into the boat. It's the same word as no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. In John 21, 7, same author, same book of the Bible, the same word is hauling fish into the boat. Well, let's back up. Let's go to John 18, 10. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's, uh, he's prayed for, if there's any other um, way, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And he's about to go to the cross. He's about to be betrayed. The, um, a little war breaks out in the garden of Gethsemane as these soldiers come in to take Jesus away. Peter, remember what he does in John? Grabs his sword, he's probably right-handed, grabs his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants. And the text tells us in 1810 that Peter drew his sword from the sheath. It's the same word. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And here's Peter drawing the sword from its sheath. And finally, in Acts 16, 19... Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel 
It's enraging the multitudes. They don't want to hear the gospel, good news of repenting from your sins and turning to Jesus for salvation. And so it says the multitudes grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace. It's the exact same word, dragged them before the rulers. So what this means then, as one commentator notes, the key verb draw in this verse implies that an object is moved, or the object rather being moved, is incapable of moving or propelling itself, right? A net full of fish doesn't jump into the boat. And Paul and Silas didn't drag themselves away, and a sword doesn't draw itself from its sheath. The commentator continues, or this word draw in the case of people implies that people are unwilling to do so voluntarily. He says there's not one example in the New Testament of the use of this verb where resistance is successful. So it's possible Paul and Silas were resisting being dragged into the marketplace, but they were dragged into the marketplace. And the reason this is important is because some people just look at this English word and say draw, and they assume that it's, no, God's not moving people. He's not dragging or hauling them, which it can be translated as those words, unless the father hauls him or drags him. It can be translated the same way. But because it says draws, some say, well, you can resist that drawing. You can reject the wooing. You can reject those things of, of Jesus. But what we see here then is that draw does not mean to woo or to entice. It simply describes the act of God moving us, dragging us from himself to Jesus. And whereas give emphasizes what the father gives to the son, draw emphasizes our experience in salvation. So from our vantage point, it could be 10,000 gospel conversations. It could be lots of prayer. It could be reading apologetic books. It could be a period of time. It's drawing from our vantage point. But what we see is it's not us being wooed. It's the Father moving us. It describes our experience of salvation. And the third term, grants. In verse 65. Verse 65, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. That word grant isn't the most helpful. Why? Because you could read it as allow. Okay, sure, I grant you to do that. And so the Father lets him do it. Now, it still implies the Father's in control to a little bit, but that's a wrong way of viewing it. Why? The word grant in verse 65 is the exact same Greek word from verse 37, gives. And they just, to smooth it out in English, they use the word grant, which I think is unhelpful because it, it um, can be confusing when you're reading it in English and trying to figure out, okay, how do I interpret this? So, it would be an interpretive mistake then to think that the words draw or grant imply that there is any contribution or condition on our part that there's something in my fallen state that gives aid or adds to my salvation. Rather, all three terms that Jesus uses, gives, draws, and grants, they all underscore what we've already seen, the unwillingness 
and inability on the part of people to come to God. Why am I pointing this out? One, it's our text. But two, there is a mistake. There's an interpretive mistake that John Wesley made when John Wesley embraced Jacob Arminius's teaching of what is called prevenient grace or prevenient grace. What is that? There is a teaching that is very prominent, and it's this. Somehow, we are not entirely sure how, but from the cross, God gives just enough grace, just enough, you're still fallen, and it overcomes your spiritual depravity, your total depravity, and, it, uh, and it overcomes your death and darkness. It's just enough grace to enable, but not ensure. And this is the language that this system uses. It's very important. Just enough grace while you're not born again, still in darkness, still spiritually dead, just enough grace to enable but not ensure personal acceptance of the gift of salvation. That's prevenient grace. And Jacob Arminius taught it, Arminianism. And then John Wesley adopted that, the great evangelist that he was. So, what does that mean if that's true? In prevenient grace, the final deciding factor in salvation then is not God, but me. Because it's just enough grace not to overpower my will, but to free my will enough so that in my deadness and darkness, I can still choose Jesus or not choose Jesus, and God can't do anything about that other than that little gift of the certain measure of grace. So God gives just enough grace to um, nudge, uh, but I'm the determining agent, not God. My salvation then, under this view, is finally determined by me and not God. And here's what that means. God can offer salvation, but God cannot actually save. I remember in, um, at school, there was a brother who was very committed to faithfully embracing this doctrine. And we were praying in a hallway at school once, and I asked him for the, to pray for the salvation of my um, stepfather. And being faithful to his system, he could not pray for God to save. Because if God saved, that would be against the will of this system of prevenient grace. So all he did was he spent the time praying of binding Satan and binding demons and, 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 and um, somehow basically smoothing out a path for my stepdad to freely of his own accord with a little bit of help of prevenient grace choose to be saved. In this system, you can never ask God to save anybody because in this system, he can't and won't. This means that in this system, God's like a firefighter who runs to the front door, opens the door to the burning house, sees someone there lying on the ground and says, hey, 
the house is on fire, come on out. But never actually runs in and rescues the person. What kind of firefighter is that? He needs to get fired. Or he's like a lifeguard who, who sees the drowning victim, and the lifeguard runs up close and reaches and says, grab my hand, but is committed to actually never grabbing the hand of the drowning victim to bring them in because prevenient grace. He also should be fired. But the thing is, in both those pictures, it's the uh, firefighter saying, the house is on fire, come on out, and hey, I notice you're drowning, take my hand. But what's the biblical metaphor? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are in our darkness. So I'm not a drowning victim, I'm drowned. And I'm not trapped in a burning house, well, I am, but I'm already burned and dead. I need the firefighter to go in and pick me up and bring me out and give me new life, and I need the, the lifeguard to get, jump into the ocean and bring me to shore and resuscitate me, resurrect me. But why am I so belaboring this? Because this idea of prevenient grace in various species of it is the predominant view of American Christians. And for John Wesley, this is the view held by free will Baptists, Methodists, Wesleyans, and Nazarenes, nearly all charismatic churches, and most, many, non-denominational churches. So it's, this is a predominant teaching of people, but um, of belief that is not carefully investigated, for example, with John chapter 6 and all that Jesus says. So is Wesley's view biblical and true? The answer is no. I set the evidence before us first, rather Jesus did. We saw that give and draw and grant all describe God's unilateral and decisive action to save his elect not based on anything foreseen in us, not based on anything in us, but by God's sovereign and loving purposes. You see, Wesley's view of prevenient grace, as interesting as it might be, and it might seem like it gets God off the hook of the problem of evil, and it might seem to rescue God from the question of, well, why doesn't he save everybody if he can? As interesting as it might be, this not only is not found in Scripture, search high and low, it's found nowhere, this view of prevenient grace contradicts Scripture and robs our triune God in Christ of the glory of actually being a Savior who saves. Because if prevenient grace is true then, when Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me, that cannot be true on that system. Because the Father can't give in the first place. And if the Father did give, some would lose their salvation, some would resist salvation, some would never come. It cannot be true. And it contradicts, and it turns God into a Savior who offers salvation, but actually doesn't save. And so if someone holds to this view, 
To be intellectually honest and consistent, you can never pray for God to save anybody. But scripture is clear, and praise God that it is. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That was the first point. I told you it was the longest. Now, briefly, we look at the son's role in salvation. This is quick. Point number two, then, that's the father giving, drawing, and granting. What does the son do in our salvation? The son protects and preserves all that the father gives. Two verses, the second half of verse 37 and verse 39. Now, think about the context. The cross hasn't happened yet. Jesus is on the road to the cross. He's getting ready to go and bear our sins on the cross and raise from the grave. But here, Jesus' words are preparing for his cross work. Look at verse 37b, back half of the verse. Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in verse 39, I should lose nothing of all the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What's Jesus saying in these two verses? 100% of the people the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus will receive and Jesus will never cast out. He is not a reluctant Savior. 100% of the people the Father draws to Jesus will not be lost. There's no cracks in the fence for a silly sheep to leave the fold. No one will be lost. 100% of the people the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus will most assuredly raise to eternal life. So there's no disunity in the Trinity's gospel plan. And friends, there is no insecurity for the believer. We can be assured that we belong to Christ. And we can be assured that he will never lose us or cast us out. On the prevenient grace system, I can get saved and I can unsave myself. There's nuances there and there's debates internally within that system of how that works. But friends, what this is teaching is that you will never be lost if you're in Christ. Perhaps this sounds familiar. Maybe you've heard this verse before. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, Jude 24, 24. You see, this is true, the security of your salvation and the assurance of your salvation. This is true because the first point is true, that God elects people people to salvation it depends on God and not us you see we'll look at this a little bit more soon but notice assurance of salvation and the perseverance of the saints does not depend upon you you are not the perseverer of yourself God preserves you looking to ourselves is the wrong place to look we do not own we are not the source We are not the substance of assurance. Jesus is. Jesus is. 
You see, what this teaches, Jesus never casting us out, Jesus losing nothing but raising us up on the last day, that teaches us, it teaches you and me, that you, you maybe have come in here this morning disheartened, and now Jesus preaches to you. Maybe if it feels like your love for the Savior is lukewarm and cold. Maybe it feels like your grasp on him is, is, is waning. And maybe it feels like and looks like that your life is more attracted to anything other than Jesus himself. But this is telling us we look up and out to the Father who gave us to the Son and to the Son who promises to never become. Think about this, what Jesus says. He is a Savior who's not a careless savior. He is a savior who is not inattentive to us. He knows your heart. He knows that we are merely dust. He knows our frame, as the psalmist says. So Jesus is not careless and inattentive to lose some of us. Jesus is not going to become fed up with you, so disappointed in you, that he gives up and casts you out because he says, you know what, you've messed up enough. You keep giving me reasons for having gone to the cross. I'm done with you and you're out. No, he is not a reluctant savior. That's why he went to the cross for us. This means that a true Christian cannot lose their salvation precisely because their salvation depends upon God and not you. Amen. And friends, the opposite. If a Christian could lose their salvation, then verse 39 is false. Because Jesus promises, I that I should lose nothing of all the Father's given me, but raise it up on the last day. If we can be lost, Jesus is either mistaken or a liar, but either way, the Bible has an error in that case, and Jesus is not God because he doesn't know all things, and he cannot save. Jesus did not die for the possibility of salvation. Jesus died for the actuality and security of your salvation. And so to that we say, praise God, because all of us come in here with a very weak grasp on Christ. Beset by sins, allured by the things of the world, weighed down by sins and sufferings and sorrows and shames and difficulties and doubts. We all as Christians have those things. And here Jesus is telling us, you might feel like you're going to lose me, but I'm never going to lose you. And I'm never going to let go. So far from being ivory tower theological argumentation and disputation, this is what gets you out of bed on Tuesday morning. This is why the Apostle Paul could say that he does all things for the sake of the elect because they will be saved and more. Friends, if you're in Jesus, you are eternally secure, eternally assured, and eternally preserved. You're going to cross the finish line because Jesus is going to take you across the finish line. Praise God. And so then, point number three, so what? What does Jesus' difficult teaching on the doctrine of election and total depravity, right? The flesh is of no help at all, verse 63. Irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. You could sneak the L in. 
what type of Christian does this produce? Because the multitudes left Jesus. They didn't want to drink his blood. They didn't want to eat his flesh. That's last week. And they didn't want to believe this. And so they left. They were offended. They didn't like that. But the, the 12 did. Look at verse 57. He says, Jesus says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now, later he's going to say that his words are spirit and life. It's a beautiful play on living in Jesus, is dwelling in Jesus, is feasting on Jesus, and Jesus is the word made flesh, and his words are spirit, and there's this braided, beautiful, confusing truth here. What does living because of Jesus mean? Because to live in Jesus is to believe and feast on these words, all of them, not some of them. Life in Christ, friends, is not just duration, it's quality of life. And life in Christ is not just future, life in Christ is now because of his resurrection and outpouring of the Spirit. So to feast on the bread of life nourishes our souls to believe in Jesus, to believe what he says and who he says he is. When you feast on this and it nourishes your soul, what type of person ought these truths produce? Three things. Number one. The doctrine of election produces gospel hope and assurance. Again, for taking notes, the doctrine of election and all that we looked at produces gospel hope and assurance. These biblical truths are meant to assure you that you are in fact saved. What did Peter say? Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Not some words of eternal life. Every red letter, as it were, is the words of eternal life, including what we look at this morning. But friends, we're like each other. We're weak. When we sing that we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, that's true. The savoriness of the bread of life isn't always so appetizing to us. We can become used to Jesus. We, we've read that in the Bible before. I've heard it a thousand times. And so our, our hearts get numbed to the truth. But then we look at that and we say, maybe I'm not actually saved. We're looking into ourselves and we see the coldness of our love and the disinterest of our Bible reading. And we begin to measure ourselves against ourselves or, or reverse. We look at other people and say, man, I am so much better than everybody else. And so what we end up doing is we end up having tremendous pride or tremendous despair because we're looking for assurance in our performance and in our feelings and in our actions compared against either each other or against myself. And that's not where we look. We look to Jesus because he's the one who holds us. It's his performance, not ours. But friends, when, when you believe that Christ holds you fast. Don't have faith in your faith about how strong you think your grip is. Our faith is in Christ and his holding of us alone. So friends, when you, when you have concern about being in Christ, 
When, when you, you know, when you desire your love to be warmer for the Savior, when, when deep down you don't want to leave Jesus, but it seems like you are, when you have doubts and difficulties and all those things, friends, I want to suggest those themselves are evidences that you are in fact secure and assured in Christ. Because people who aren't saved aren't worried about leaving the Savior. And people who don't know Jesus aren't very concerned about how warm or cold their love for Jesus is. But so many of us look at our performance, look at our Christian resume, and if people really knew what our resume actually said, if they really knew what we thought and felt, well, they'd probably turn us out from the church. And Jesus says, look at my resume. Jesus says, look at my work. Because nothing can be exposed about you that hasn't already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the doctrine of election, the Father giving you to the Son, means that you only have one thing in Jesus, assurance and hope. Because he won't let go of you, even if you let go. In other words, the doctrine of assurance of salvation beckons you to look to Christ. To be Christ-centered and gospel-saturated. And to believe that he holds you securely. That he is preserving you as you persevere through every storm and every doubt. Assurance calls us to fix our eyes on the cross and not our work as a Christian. And this, my dear friends, is gems and jewels from the Bible. This is treasure for our soul. This is a reminder that when you get out of bed, it's Christ who holds me fast. You probably need to check. Romans 8.39 might have fallen out of your Bible. Is it still there? Do you know for sure? Have you seen it lately? What does Romans 8.39 say? Nothing. How comprehensive is the word nothing, do you think? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you know that nothing includes you? You're part of the nothing. Nothing, Romans 8.39, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Number two, the doctrine of election produces gospel humility and gospel happiness. When you recognize that the Bible teaches that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Romans 8.7, desireless of God, that you were unable to come to him, and more than that, unwilling to come to him, where is your boasting of being saved? It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you have a better disposition. It's because Jesus. It's because Holy Spirit. It's because of the Father. That out of sheer grace and eternal love, the Father gave you to Jesus through the Spirit. And what that does is that creates humility. A humbleness that recognizes that all credit goes to the triune God, and all boasting is praise directed to him, nothing in me, all in him. But this also changes how you relate and view every other Christian, because they're like you too. They also were unable and unwilling. They also were dead in their trespasses. This means that you, but look more to your friend, to your spouse, to your neighbor, they are a trophy of saving grace. They are in the process of transformation into Christ's likeness. 
you are a living emblem of redeeming gospel grace of Jesus Christ and his electing love. You ought to marvel that anyone is sitting in this room to gather under the preaching of Christ's word and to sing praises to Christ and more. The greatest miracle that happens is a dead person becoming alive in Jesus by the Spirit. So then when we relate to each other, we relate to each other with humility and happiness. Happy that God loved you. Happy that God loved me. Not because of us, but because of him. This truth humbles. It doesn't create pride. It's a humble happiness that wonders at God's amazing, redeeming grace. On the biblical truth of election alone, we Christians ought to be the most humble and most happy people on the face of the earth. And lastly, point number three, the doctrine of election produces gospel mission. It is true and undeniable that in the history of the church, there have been pockets and seasons of Christianity that have gone wrong with the doctrine of election, saying we should not even evangelize. That's nonsense, and that's stupid, because that's not Bible. Those are all technical theological terms. God uses means. Why should we pray if God is sovereign? Because God uses means. You have not because you ask not. Now, our prayer doesn't work. God works in our prayers. Big difference. And, and when we pray, God uses our prayers to accomplish his providences. And in the same way, God does not just zap people into salvation or, or send angels. God sends his church. We are to evangelize because guess what? There is a 100% success rate with evangelism. Meaning all the elect will most assuredly be saved. Uh, Acts 18 verses 9 and 11. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, right? He'd been betrayed, beaten, flogged, mocked, everything. And he said to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Why would Jesus say that to him in the vision? For I have many in the city who are my people. That's talking about people who aren't saved yet. This is talking about the elect through Paul's preaching who will eventually believe. Remember, from our vantage point, it may take 10,000 gospel conversations, reading apologetic books. You guys have heard the story of my mom in her uh, being an evangelist when she worked in hospice, working with cantankerous, old 90-year-old men who were rude and mean to their beautiful Christian wives their whole entire lives, and on their deathbed, Jesus gives them a new heart, and with tears, they repent and believe in Jesus so that they can go see Jesus and hug their wives and apologize for being jerks their entire marriage for 50 years. But what you have there is that we don't know when people get saved, and the doctrine of elections tells us to never give up, never lose hope, because we trust in the Savior to accomplish his purposes. And so Jesus says to Paul, I have many people in this city who are my people. And verse 11 says, so Paul stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. It is an error to think, though, listen to this, 
that your mission is just to evangelize the lost. What do I mean? Your mission is to bless and build the church. We're not supposed to be the frozen chosen. Matthew 28, what does it say? It does not say go and evangelize. It says go and make disciples. There's a difference. There is a notion, the last hundred years of the church, that we just want converts. We don't want converts. We want disciples. Hear me carefully on that. We preach the gospel, but it's not, oh, you, re you, you raised your hand for Jesus? Okay, go and God bless. It's make disciples. So our mission is not just to preach the gospel to the lost, but to see the lost saved and then discipled into full or mature disciples of Jesus who can replicate themselves. So the doctrine of election produces gospel mission. We, we preach the gospel to the lost and we preach the gospel to one another. What do I mean? How's the church built? How do we grow in Christ's likeness? We build the church, of course, by using time, talents, and resources to advance the gospel through service and generosity. That's our mission too. But listen, do you know that you're supposed to keep evangelizing the saved? Do you remember that the gospel is meant to make and shape disciples of Jesus? If you think the gospel message, full-orbed and all the effects of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, outpouring the, the Spirit, his session at the right hand of the throne of God, his life on our place, and more, if you think it's only the gospel for unbelievers and not Christians, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is for our justification so that it can be for our sanctification. The means by which the Holy Spirit produces ongoing transformation and maturity in the life of Christ is a daily inspection and reminder of personal self-evangelization. Evangelizing myself. We are to use the word of Christ, the gospel, to shape each other continually in Christ. And the biblical proof of all of this, my friends, at John 6, is the disciples. It's these truths that led to Peter's great confession in John 6, you are the Holy One of God. To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verses 68 and 69. What we now call the doctrines of total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, and more are drawn from John 6 and other places. And those are considered the words of eternal life which lead to conversion. And what led to these guys' salvation and their transformed lives is meant to lead to our salvation and our transformed lives. What Jesus says is one of two responses. You will grumble and murmur and leave him, or you will say, to whom will we go? Your words are delicious. They're the words of eternal life. So I ask you this question in closing. What will you do with these gospel truths from the mouth of Jesus? Amen? Father, we pray that you would satisfy our souls with Jesus by your spirit. Oh Lord, give us to your son. And Lord, if there's any here that you have not given, draw them and give them, we ask. Move us to be a gospel people. 
motivated by these truths to preach your gospel to all the world and to never give up and never lose heart and to preach this gospel to each other to build us up into maturity in Christ's likeness. In whose name we pray. All God's people said, amen.